Hello, and welcome to this episode of Vogue Business's Beauty Radar, a no-nonsense podcast unpacking the hottest beauty topics today, presented by City Commercial Bank. I'm your host today, Katie Chitrakoran, and we'll be discussing beauty's inequity problem. Beauty companies are placing a greater focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but there's still a lot of work to be done. It's worth addressing as it represents a $2.6 billion opportunity. However, several friction points still remain. And to help me unpack all of this is Moj Madra. Hi, Moj. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you. And before we really get into unpacking this topic, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear just super quickly about your background. You know, you've had a really impressive stint at BeautyCon, and that journey has led you to launching Beauty United and Kinship Ventures. You know, Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. You know, I have a little bit of a weird on-ramp into this industry. I'm a queer, non-binary brown kid who has like no formal education or pedigree and has always been obsessed with digital ecosystems and consumers and entertainment and popular culture and brands. And so I had a agency business I'd sold previously before BeautyCon and ended up being sort of face planting into what they now call Web 2.0, which at the time, the um, biggest movers and shakers in that space were either the gamers and or all of the mega influential, important content and influencers within the beauty industry. And I fell madly in love with the beauty industry in like 2010, like just head over heels in love. And so since then, I have was the CEO and co-founder of BeautyCon. I think most people at this point know what that is. But if not, it was a international platform and convention, subscription box, media company globally. Um, started a nonprofit called Beauty United in the middle of the pandemic to bring more diversity and inclusion and education, really education and mentorship to the beauty industry. And, and my day job is I'm a venture capitalist at Kinship Ventures, and we invest in consumer-facing brands and technologies. And so I've got, I'm, I'm a busybody and I have a lot going on these days. And then on my spare time, I advocate for the women of Iran through the Iranian Diaspora Collective. And so yeah, those are those are my things. <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely have a lot going on. And I, I know this is quite a broad question, but in terms of DNI, like um where are we at as an industry now? Like uh, how how would you describe the state of the industry? You know, I went to TED a few years ago and the entire topic and thesis of that conference was really around stakeholder capitalism, which had was something I'd never heard much about and learned much about was, but it was really about the concept that, you know, we've really come up in a time, especially someone like me, I'm in my forties where capitalism and building companies was really about, you know, your shareholders, your board, your executive team. And that was really it. That was sort of what people thought about when they thought about a successful leader I think in the middle of the pandemic, it became abundantly clear that these systems were not working for us and that there needed to be a new table, not just more seats at the table, but a new table. And I think that new table includes uh, voices of employees and consumers who are also shareholders and stakeholders of organizations. And so 
I think the beauty industry is really um, aware of the changes it needs to make, but it's really difficult to convince shareholders and board members and executive teams that have been primarily um, not minorities and not women to all of a sudden uh, give up those seats and influences and power. And so I think we're in a place where the problem has been identified, but the solution is going to take longer than probably most people want, but is more important today than it ever was before. And so the only solution to healthy society of companies is to have companies and their shareholders look more like their consumers. And there's no doubt in any of our minds that our consumers are demanding and uh, requesting a more inclusive environment than ever before. And I don't think that has to do with just your skin tone or ethnicity. I think it has to do with the policies and the culture of how companies are run. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about that because I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, we've identified that there is a solution. I mean, that we've identified that there is an issue, but the solution, we, we haven't found it yet. And we know that, um, you know, BT consumers as well as brands with founders of color, they face deep challenges when it comes to equity and you know, we were just discussing how it's like it's a really challenging time in the world at the moment and it might feel like it's not the biggest priority for some companies like how should companies be thinking about this you know apart from it being you know obviously the right thing to do you know how, how does it benefit everyone in the industry you know what, why should companies care about removing those barriers well, I mean, if anything has ever proven to us the failure of systems when it is one gender and uh, limited representation in the decision-making seat, I think the crisis we're dealing with globally today should be like an exact case study of that. Not having enough women, not having enough minorities at the table, uh, and as I said, not just a table, but a new table. You know, we're in a crisis of decision-making and identity right now. I think the world in itself, and I mean, I think you're seeing this play out in real time where uh, we've never seen young people and uh, people of color globally, not just in our country, more um, disapproving and disconnected from the decision-makers. And so I think there really is a crisis of identity, both for leadership and consumers. And I think, you know, in terms of whether it's too late or whether it's a priority or not. Uh, if I was running a big company right now with hundreds of thousands of employees, I would be most definitely sitting in a room with my executive team and uh, members of my employee team and some of my shareholders to really think through what the expectations are of leadership and companies on a go forward. I mean, Women historically are, we know the stats, not getting paid. You know, we're talking about, you know, 60, 70 cents on the dollar. We know that black women and Latin women and women of color are falling down in the 42 cent, 50 cents on the dollar. And we know that queer people of color and uh, people like myself are even lower than that. And frankly, the beauty industry, the primary consumer there are women and the primary people that are involved in marketing and branding are minorities and people of color, queer people. We've been tokenized, fetishized. I think people are quite disappointed to not see 
some of these larger legacy brands that have made their mark and culture being run by diverse and inclusive leadership. And that doesn't mean that a white cis person can't be diverse and inclusive. I, I want to be clear, diversity and inclusivity has nothing to do with, um, well, it doesn't only have to do with skin tone or identity. It has to also do with a cultural type of leadership and how someone leads and their emotional intelligence in addition to their intellectual intelligence. And so I think, you know, it's a difficult time to be a leader. And I think I, I wouldn't want to be the person who's you know, I think it's a lot of pressure to think about all the stakeholders you have to make happy right now. But if you look at employee activism and consumer activism right now, I mean, it's you're answering to them the same way you do on your quarterly earnings. Do you feel like that's a shift that is impacting companies. I thought it was quite interesting when the last time we spoke, um, something that instantly struck me about, you know, BT United was that it was the relationships that you have with your brand partners and the execs that you speak to. Because I think generally in the world, people want to do better, but they don't want to be told they're doing things wrongly. And certainly they don't want to be cancelled publicly. I feel like cancel culture is very real these days. Like, is this something that you find coming up in your conversations? Yes. I mean, I think the whole thesis for Beauty United was to live through the lens of calling people in versus calling them out. I think cancel culture innately in itself has some good things about it, but I would say the bad has now outweighed the good. It activates your, what do they call it, your reptilian brain, your lizard brain, where everything is extremely binary. Um you know, making the decision a few years ago to be non-binary, to have top surgery, one of the things that became available to me was that being non-binary wasn't necessarily just about gender, but it was also about my perspective and how I thought about things. And we innately believe that the leadership and our colleagues are good people. They, we believe that. Like, I, I staunchly, firmly believe that. I think that the concept of if you know better, you do better. Not always, but I think for the most part, for people who do want to make a difference, and I think the beauty industry is unlike any other industry, and it's why I'm so in love with it. It's filled with makers and creatives and people, a lot of people at the tops of these companies are former editors and creatives and designers. They were heads of product at, at, at larger holding companies. They were makeup artists, they were hairstylists. There's so much creativity within our industry. And I innately believe that our industry is filled with people that want to make a difference. I don't think that they would spend their whole lives making products to help empower and make people feel good about themselves if they didn't care for their consumer. And so the how, the how is really hard. And I think when you're running a company and building a brand and you have investors and you're accountable for the financial well-being of an organization, the education around how to be more diverse and inclusive and what's a microaggression and what is code switching and why do people have to code switch and what creates a harmonious environment where minorities do feel that they can participate and make a difference and where um, we can acknowledge the flaws of leadership in the past and we can acknowledge where the system was not correct and has not been favorable and inclusive and equitable. I think Beauty United's entire mission and thesis has been about not just equality, but equity. And I think equity for myself, what gives me the confidence is to know that I have 
equities in my life that allow me the privilege to do things like this. Without the equity, I wouldn't have a platform and a voice to say the things I say or do the projects I do. And so creating more equitable environments, you know, I think the retailers have done a great job of this by opening up their doors, everything from whether it's 15% pledge or all of the great work um, that Kendra does through her fund, uh, her founder studio and a brain trust. You know, I think putting real business resources behind minorities and founders of color and not just founders, but entrepreneurs, which entrepreneurs are also incredibly important. We need people to go on to run the Fortune 500 blue chip beauty hold co's and having more diversity of thought culture is incredibly important. And so our thesis and my thesis has always been about calling people in and uh, Professor Loretta Ross at Smith uh, coined this term. She's an incredibly potent and informative thought leader. She deserves a lot of credit for this thinking. Um, and she wrote this article in the middle of the pandemic that rather than calling people out, call them in. And so the entire mentorship fellowship program of Beauty United was framed around that thinking. And our decision was to offer the goodwill to our CEOs and founders of these companies to give them an opportunity to lean in. And I am thrilled to tell you they have done exactly that. Yeah, they've done a good job. No, the, the leaning in concept is really interesting. You were the one who introduced it to me this summer. I I wasn't familiar with it before. But like you said, a, like a lot of execs are kind of, they want to be on the right path. So what would you say are like the still the biggest remaining challenges when it comes to removing the barriers that prevent companies from, you know, achieving or allowing that equity? You know, what's getting in the way of industry progress still? I mean, human beings innately are going to always protect what's theirs. And I think there's a sense of this is how it's been. And and I think there's a sense of it's too much too fast. You know, we've definitely seen that within our political climate, not just in the States, but globally, right? You saw we swung really hard to the left and then we, the, the pendulum just swung right back to an extreme amount of conservatism. I've been pretty publicly criticized my entire career for being kind of a moderate <laughs> in the sense that I am like a progress over perfection type of person. I am a, you know, two, three steps forward, maybe one step back. I don't think this will be perfect. I don't think this will be overnight. I don't believe we can post an Instagram post and somehow, you know, leaders of all of these huge hold the codes that you and I work with all day are going to all of a sudden resign and give their seat to someone else. But I do think mentorship, fellowship, allyship is real. And I would not have the career I have. And I, I think many of my colleagues would say the same, that the cosign, the allyship, the standing together, the leaning in, is it happening as much as I want? No. Is it happening at the scale that I want? No. I think it would be dishonest for me to say the reality is that funding of women and funding of minorities has, in fact, fallen since summer of 2020, mm. which is hugely tragic. I think you're seeing a rollback in DNI programs. You're seeing a rollback in investment into communities of color. I think that people think that they've checked that box. But I think these types of conversations in this moment are 
important to remind people that the work needs to continue to deepen. And I think like every big popular culture moment, you have people that were into it for the hype. And then you have people who really believe in it as a core value to who they are. And I think those people will continue to move the work forward and it will not be perfect, but we will continue pushing. I feel like it's become quite clear as well which companies were just jumping into it in the moment and which companies are kind of continuing to invest. And something that I've been speaking um, to people a lot about recently is just this idea, this constant chase for cultural relevancy. I feel like something has shifted where companies these days, they're not just companies, they're expected to be like this platform, almost like media. And I feel like we see companies trying to chase certain things. At one point, everyone's talking about launching an NFT. And then there's another point, everybody's talking about having like a K-pop celebrity. And I feel like DNI is just one of those things as well, where some people quickly jumped in, but haven't perhaps maintained it. I think everything you just said hits the nail on the head. I think um, part of that is just capitalism, right? Like we still are, you know, we're talking about, I've been reading a lot about what is democracy lately. And one of the founding principles in, of, of democracy is capitalism. And we have chosen to all live in a society that um, observes and functions within a capitalistic society. And so you have quarterly earnings, you have board updates, you have investor updates. This was, this was one of the hardest things I think when as a founder, you're running an organization and sometimes what is good for your shareholders and your, your stakeholders from an economic perspective, or maybe not what's good for your consumers and your employees and your team. And so I think finding a way to, straddle both sides is the very difficult work of every leader that there is today. I think it'll be super interesting. You know, we're in the middle of, you know, whether you want to call it a recession. And if you don't want to call it a recession, you can say it's like a recession hangover, anxiety attack, like something in the mood and energy of the world is, I would say, fair to say, not positive. But every time these types of moments happen in history, like after the crash in 2000, like nine and 10, um, you saw a flurry of new companies that went on to become like Uber and Airbnb and Spotify. And that that's really been what, what I would call web 2.0, right? We are now entering the arena of AI. We're entering the arena of what crypto and uh, blockchain will go on to be as a tool. You're talking about a globalization on a scale like we've never seen. I think all the stats are now coming back. I think by 2060, the United States is no longer primarily Caucasian. It's primarily Latin. Um, you know, you're seeing an influx of huge influence, whether it's media or beauty from South Asia, Middle East, uh, Asia proper, Korea, like this globalization from an influencer perspective is upon us. And so how we think about building companies and cultures around that, we're never going to get away from our quarterly earnings unless for some reason they decide to change that to twice a year, which I sometimes hear people talking about that. But jumping on this because it is a trend will not end. The question is, what are the things that you can do, as I said, progress over perfection? And what people want to see the most is they want to see themselves represented in leadership. They want to see themselves represented in policy. 
the observance of things like Juneteenth, right? Like that was, maybe we don't acknowledge how big of a deal that was because um, it's too soon. But I think when you look back on time, people will have different feelings about that. One area that needs to be explored and double clicked into is how we treat maternal care and mothers. That's a minority as well. These are people that are marginalized deeply within the work environment, a professional environments in terms of how people who actually create the next generation of society are treated within the workplace. And I don't think there's enough discussed about that. I think we're also in a place where ageism is real. And I know that this there's a lot of data now coming back around what people are experiencing who are, call it 50 plus within the workplace. Um, so I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion, my hope is that we're going to get past just color and race. And we're going to really talk about the equities of what's most important to people in general. And I, my feeling at this point will be that it will go beyond a BIPOC support of things like BD United and it will take on, you know, ageism. It will take on the insane level of microaggressions that mothers deal with within the workplace, which to me is like extremely problematic. And it will continue to take on the inequities of just women. Like the, the fact that we still like the beauty, the fact that the beauty industry is not just run entirely by women and people of color is kind of bonkers. If you really think about it, like I'll never, ever, 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 ever forget when I was first raising money for BeautyCon and it took me like 101 meetings to get that first $200,000 check. And, um, you know, I, I, I like what I like literally could not get anyone to give me money to save my life. And people would always say like, well, what do you know about makeup? Like you don't wear makeup, you're masculine leaning, like you, you don't look like any of these other girls who are coming in to start a beauty brand. And I said, well, I don't see the CEO and chairman of Estee Lauder or L'Oreal wearing lipstick and makeup, and they seem perfectly capable to run those companies. Why not me? And it was kind of an earth shattering conversation for them because I think they were kind of like shook that I, I don't think I even planned on saying it. It just kind of came out. And a lot of yeah. friendships have come out of that comment. Those people have actually I'll never forget this. It was uh, Frederick at L'Oreal. He was our first seven-figure partner in, in BeautyCon. And it was because of this very earnest, real conversation that we had. So, Yeah, but I mean, you're also absolutely right. When you look at the beauty industry, there's fewer than five, you know, CEOs who are actually female. And, and that's globally as well. <laughs> Like, we're embarrassed to actually say the numbers. Like, I think if you actually published the numbers, right? And that's what I mean about stakeholder capitalism. If if your consumer is primarily blank, right? This is the demographics of your consumer. And your leadership is the polar opposite of that. I don't think consumers are going to go along for this much longer. I feel like there's a lot for brands to think about, especially if you're like a brand founder or brand exec, like how should they be thinking about measuring results or the impact of, you know, if, if they want to make increased equity in their organization, you know, especially when progress is not something that happens overnight, it's not e easily measurable. Um, how would you advise companies to think about this? 
I read stuff that like Warren Buffett talks about where he talks about the greatest economic opportunity is just pay equality. And I don't think he says that because he's like a humanitarian. I think he says that because he's smart, reads the data and the stats, and he sees that pay equity and pay equality throughout the entire system is going to just create more consumers. And we know who sort of decides household decisions in the home in terms of beauty and soap and shampoo and all the things that are sold from all of the big holdcos. So it's such an easy answer, but it's a difficult it's an easy answer and it's difficult. It's like saying, we just want peace. We just want peace. It's like, well, what does that mean? How do you put policies and guardrails and frameworks in place that actually create peace? And we're, we're talking about that right now in the Middle East. Um, when you, I think the tactics are not that much different within corporate environments, which is as a kinship, as a venture capitalist, my question to companies all the time, how many women are on your cap table? How many minorities are on your cap table? What is the composition of your board? I think these are the things that people need to start asking about. And if you are at a company that's primary consumer is women and a huge percentage of or people are people of color, minorities, queer people, that representation now needs to show up on the board level. And I don't think you're going to have more presidents and CEOs of these companies until the board composition changes. Like to me, when I saw all of that activism happening, I thought that the consumer must not know who the actual like 12 governing people are of these companies. They, they think it's the CEO of this company or they think it's the president, but that person answers to a board and that board has the luxury of anonymity and not hide, you know, they, they're very notoriously not on Instagram and not doing PR because they're not the ones having to execute, but they are the ones ultimately making the decisions and, and co-signing a CEO or a president to make those decisions. And so I don't think you can really have true economic inclusion until you see the board composition change. You know, one of the things I'm actively working on for myself over the next um, year will be what board roles I want to be taking for myself within the beauty industry and specifically corporate boards, um, public boards. And I think this is where the advocacy has to start and begin, because I think by the time it gets down to a canceled Instagram page, that is just like months and months and years of failed leadership passing down failed HR policies, failed education policies. And I think, you know, I think people would benefit a lot from meeting people like Professor Loretta Ross. I think people would benefit a lot from attending the programs that Beauty United um, programs for our founders on our Tuesday morning chats. But you have to want to be curious and you have to want to learn. And so I think the industry needs to weed out everyone who doesn't want to expand and learn. And there's a lot of people who want to learn and there's a lot of people who don't. And I think it's pretty evident at this point who is not interested in expanding their minds and their understanding of the consumer. I mean, this is who we work for. We work for the consumer. We don't work for shareholders. We work for the people that buy our products and the most important thing you can do today is create a strong relationship with the consumer 
because the most expensive thing for a new company to do today is to buy a new consumer retention. It's a mm. topic we talk about all day long. But yes, you know what? I don't know, like Dr. Bronner's or In and Out Burger or Trader Joe's. Like I think of these brands that I never see like marketing everywhere, like billboards and ads and stuff. But their retention level is like unbelievable, nuts. Like it's just huge. Like I, I've never seen an In and Out, you know commercial or billboard, really. Maybe when they open a new market, it's that customer service. Every employee says they get, you know, like I've talked to people like, oh, I got dental health care, even working X numbers of hours a week. And this built-in retention has built a massive profit zone for these companies. And I think those are the types of companies I look for to invest in mm. are people who are not just finding ways to get consumers, but they're turning those consumers into fans, right? And those yes. fans are the people that staunchly, you know, stand for them and defend them and go and recruit for them. And they give the hard feedback when they have to. So I think, you know, companies have to decide, are you building a company that's here to stay? Or are you building, you know, a brand that's fast, you know, I don't want to say fast fashion, but it's kind of like, a different type of company, right? It's not a legacy brand. I mean, that's when we're talking about Estee Lauder, PNG, L'Oreal. I mean, we are talking about legacy institutions figured out a lot of stuff, right? You know, they have a lot of knowledge that's baked into their success. But I think, you know, how do you now take that next level? That's going to be the big question that all of them are going to have to ask themselves, um, especially you look at what's going on in the streets globally right now, you see where people's minds are at. You look at the polls. If you look at consumer behavior right now, like this is a bigger reckoning to me than even the summer of 2020. I think that was a uh, training wheels for what this is. Yeah. Wow. When you, when you put it like that, that's a little bit scary. <laughs> I think you saw like Women's March, the, all the activism around Trump, uh, all the activism around Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey. This is the next frontier. And as you can see, brands are terrified to say or do, and no one can really figure it out. But this consumer is, they're taking note. <laughs> yeah. They're paying attention. Yeah. And on the topic of looking ahead as well, like as we enter 2024, um, anything else you can share around what the year ahead looks like for Kidship Ventures and Beauty United? What, what are some of the other key projects or areas of focus um, that's kind of like in your pipeline? Yeah, I'm really excited about 2024 and 2025. I think when I think about my lifespan now, I sort of think of it more in like seven year chunks. And so the work that I'm doing at Kinship is really focused on uh, deploying um, investments into the best and brightest consumer-facing companies, both in uh, beauty, wellness, the future of health, maternal health care, thinking about technology as it relates to the way we work or live. Um, so that's really what I'm the most excited about from a uh, venture perspective and from a deployment perspective and really working closely with a lot of our founders um, and helping them uh, future-proof their brands. Beauty United will continue to go forward with education and 
mentorship, fellowship of our program, and we continue to believe that this is really important. And there's also, thank goodness, a ton of other players in this field who are really taking this, I think, some of the work we've done and even taking some of it to the next level. Like, again, I bring up the 15% pledge and and uh, Brain Trust Founder Studio, which has now taken this into scalable, I, I would say scalable models. I think we're super proud of the work we've done and that we've been able to do it privately and educate and bring value to so many of our leaders within the industry. And then for me, the rest of the year, we'll I will always be working on the Women Life Freedom Initiative around the women of Iran. And I believe fundamentally that um, injustices and violence against women anywhere infects and it creates a cancer everywhere. And, you know, you see that now, unfortunately, at scale and, and you know, the whole world is hurting and pain over these issues. And so for me, my focus really is the fund, some board work actively speaking and and doing more advocacy work both as a speaker and as a writer and fund is my passion and my job and what I love and bringing more diversity and inclusion to cap tables is is one of the best jobs I could possibly think of having and I'm really thrilled to be doing it and I might be like I might be incubating a little a couple things here and there but we'll talk more about that next year. I can't wait. But all right, that is all the time we have for today. Moj, you're such a unique figure in our industry and I'm so grateful um, that you joined us. So thank you um, so much. It's been such a great chat. I appreciate it. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on this podcast, you might like to become a Vogue business member. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive dynamic industry. Visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code PODCAST20 to save 20% on the usual membership rate. This has been Vogue Business's Beauty Radar Podcast, presented by City. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 